Thanks for being here. And for those who are online as well, we thank you for joining us today as we look at the uh, third in our four-week uh, series on the book of Amos. And uh, my, I guess my theme today is Search Me, O God. And we'll get to that passage a little bit later in the, in the message. As, uh, as Ross did share with us uh, two weeks ago um, in that uh, introductory to Amos, how uh, the people of Israel had been very disobedient to God over many, many years, many, many years, and uh, God was angry. And he did a lot of detail on that. And then last week, as Jackson then dug deeper into Israel's injustices, the way they lived was not in accordance to the way God wanted them to live. And as a result, God was going to uh, hand out uh, very clearly through the message of Amos what was going to happen into the future because of their disobedience. Amos was the first first-person writer in the Bible. It's interesting, isn't it? And as a result, he was the first prophet to leave his message behind in written form. The others were all passed on by oral tradition. There were many other writers afterwards, and like the New Testament, um, but uh, he was the first in the Old Testament to actually have his words recorded that are in our scripture. Amos was an ordinary man who was called to do an extraordinary task for God, and he did so in diligent obedience. And we read in Amos 7, where Amos said when he was questioned or challenged towards the end of, uh, of the book, I am neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd, and I also took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. We don't get other details in this account of uh, how he reacted, but it seems like he was just willing to go and to do because God called him to. As Ross mentioned too, two weeks ago, the word, his uh, word, Amos's name means burden, burden bearer, and what a burden he carried. God chose to use this shepherd, fig tree harvester man to speak God's truth to the religious leaders and practices of the day in Israel. Firstly, he was a foreigner to them. He was in the south from Judah. And uh, as I was uh, thinking through and as I was reading through some of the commentaries, it's interesting that God couldn't find, it seems, one person in Israel to challenge the people with this message. So this sheep herder, this fig tree harvester man was called and he acted. Amos was a courageous man with a contagious faith who embarked on an outrageous mission. I would have been shaking in my boots, to tell you the truth, but he seems to have gone with great diligence and commitment. Amos was given a message to preach 
to God's people, and these people didn't want to hear the message. Well, they probably did at the beginning, and we'll go through this shortly. But as time went on, they weren't happy with the message. During the time or the reign of David and Solomon, the, uh, the kingdom was one. And then after Solomon's death, there was division between the northern and the southern kingdom. Northern kingdom being Israel and the southern kingdom being Judah. And the, uh, the prophetic message to the eight nations mentioned in Amos drew its focus in on Israel. And it's interesting because um, I was looking at some material by David Pawson, which I do enjoy his teaching. And uh, in that earlier passage, in the earlier chapters, I mean, where it talked about it, for three sins, even for four, this idiom that, again, Ross talked about, in this outer circle, he talked initially about those who were Israel's neighbours and their inhumanity. He talked about Damascus and their cruelty. He talked about Gaza and their brutality. He talked about Tyre and their treachery. And as uh, I can imagine Amos being on the um, temple steps at Bethel, and as he preached this prophetic message, and I'm sure all the locals were saying, yeah, yeah, bad people, yeah, let God will get them. The day of the Lord will come. And then he got a little bit closer to home. And uh, he talked about the, um, the cousins of Israel, as it were. At Edom, and they were ruthless. And Ammon, they had barbarity. And for Noab, they were sacrilegious. And again, I could just imagine hearing the Israelite people saying to Amos, preach it, brother, preach it. Give it to them. Bring on the day of the Lord. And then, if you're closer to home, Judah, this is where Amos was from. And uh, the, the, the sister, as it were, to Israel. And Judah, he preached in prophetic message, they're rejecting the laws of God and they're accepting the lies of men. Keep preaching it, brother. Keep preaching it. And then he shut them up because then he focused on them. God had a message for Israel that was three times longer than the message to the other nations for their exploiting the poor among their own and their indulging in fleshly issues before God. Wow. Wow. The scene was set here with uh, Jeroboam II. He was the king when Amos went up there, was called to go and preach. He had a powerful reign for some 41 years. He had won many battles and gained territory, which generated great wealth. Confident of their nation's victories and their worship and their heritage, the people of Israel adopted the motto, God is with us. We are his people. God is with us. And they were anticipating, as I said earlier, the day of the Lord, when God would come and strike down all their enemies and establish Israel as the undisputed ruler of the region. They were wrong. They were very, very wrong. 
the nations of Israel and Judah had been living in a manner that didn't honour God for some 150 years. So God had been really, really patient. Amos 3, verse 7. Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants and to his prophets or through his prophets. God didn't seek to surprise them and to catch them out. God doesn't seek to surprise us and catch us out. God works really hard when we are living a life that is not obedient to him to try to get us to get our attention, to get us to understand that he loves us, that he cares for us, he wants the best for us. And uh, well, the children of Israel, they ignored him. They ignored him. And you can read through Amos and, and lead up to Amos um, and hear all the different opportunities that God gave to them and they responded in the negative. And I guess they responded because they chose not to follow. The book of Amos is all about God. We have been reminded last week and the week before that the book of Amos is all about God. God is looking for justice. While the rich and powerful are taking advantage of the poor, God is calling Israel to repentance as the only way to avoid destruction. God is calling Israel to repentance as the only way to avoid destruction. The book of Amos is all about God. God's patience, God's mercy, God's faithfulness, God's anger, God's brokenheartedness. It's all about God. Amos 4. Amos expressed this from behalf of from God to the people. Israel, prepare to meet your God. And then chapter 3, verse 2. Israel, I will punish you for all your sins. Those two messages are the same today as they were back then. Their sins were many. They were living like all the nations around him, but yet they were deceived to believe that they did their worship and their sacrifices in such a way that God would be pleased with them and destroy the other wicked nations. They're into idol worship. They're into prostitution in the temple. They... Uh, Denied the poor their legal representation. The wealthy abused the poor. The poor were sold into debt slavery. It goes on and it goes on and it goes on. And this period of time, about 750 um, BC, was a time at the, the middle of the 8th century. There was a lot of prosperity in the land. Israel was a, uh, was a major trade route between the East and the West. They were prosperous. They had a lot of money. And it was as if in the process of the Roman, um, Romans were building roads and developing trade. The Greeks were 
developing language and culture and the arts. And in this prosperity, Israel gained a lot of benefits. You see, Israel had been given a great calling, which brought about great responsibility, which resulted in even greater consequences. God is righteous. God is holy. God is just. He cannot allow continuous, deliberate, unrighteous living to go undealt with in regards to his people. And as I reflected on that, I just think of my own life and you think, wow, God, you are so patient and so merciful and so gracious with me. And yet enough was enough here. And at times I think even for God with me, enough is enough, Graham. That God is a God of mercy. And I think one of the things that really uh, has stood out to me through the book of Amos, and I'm going to be more disciplined into the future and read more of the minor prophets and study them. It's been a long time since Bible college days when I had to study these in greater detail, but it's been refreshing. And to realise that even though God is angry here and God is so disappointed, what is his motivator is his love for his people and for us too. Second Peter, we read, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The prophet Hosea is an interesting contrast to the prophet Amos. Just uh, a book in between. Here they are, similar time. Yet the prophet Hosea preached God's love and grace and mercy whereas Amos was about preaching God's judgment. You see, as I said earlier, God was totally fed up with the way they lived. God's people, God's chosen people, had truly lost their way. They had lost their heart for God, and God was angry, but God's heart was broken. God's people had chosen other gods to replace him. And I, I guess I identify even that, don't you, in your lives when you think of your kids or people you love, your grandkids, close friends who, uh, who are living in a way or making decisions that breaks your heart, even reacting to you in a way that breaks your heart. And even that small awareness, even in my life, makes me realise how much God's heart was broken how much pain he was in because of his love for his people. They were distracted and deceived in their prosperity and power. What God had blessed them with had become their God. What God had blessed them with had become their God. And this can happen so easily. God has always hated pride.
pride and valued humility. In Amos 6, the Lord God Almighty declares, I abhor the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses. And we read an interesting aspect in Proverbs 6 about pride. There are six things that God hates. Yes, seven things that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness, um, a fault witness who pours out lies and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Pride heads the list of these seven things. Yet I believe that pride is the fundamental of all these things that God hates. Proverbs 16, a, a couple of chapters on. The Lord detests, that's a strong word, isn't it? The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. These are tough words. And in uh, Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond all cure. Who can understand it? And the next verse, I, the Lord, search the heart, our emotions and our feelings, and examine the mind, our thoughts of reasoning, to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. Many commentators would say that pride is the underlying factor of all sin. We see in Isaiah the fall of Satan, and uh, we read these words in chapter 14. You said, this is regarding Lucifer, regarding Satan. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will rise, I'll raise my throne above the stars of God. I will make myself like the most high. Very intentional that was of Satan. Sometimes, I guess, in our pride, it can be more subtle, but it's still a decision we make. We see that even with Adam and Eve, when they were tempted by the serpent in Genesis 3, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to them. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good from evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. You will be like God, knowing good from evil. Probably we don't process things that way, that we'll be like God, because that would be wrong, wouldn't it? But sometimes the things that we hang on to, the things that we pursue, become our God. I come across this definition for pride. The sin of pride is an excessive reproduction, sorry, preoccupation with self and one's own importance, achievements, status or possessions. This sin is considered rebellion against God because its attributes to one, it, sorry, it attributes to one's self the honour and glory that only 
God is due. Many years ago when I started uh, my studies, I came across a, um, a diagram which I want to share with you in a minute. Um, and it's called a Joe Harry window. Some of you might have heard this and read about it and even studied it. And it was a very creative name for this particular um, diagram because Joe Luff and uh, Harrington Ingham were the ones who put it together. So Joe Harry was the way they decided to call this little diagrammatic tool. And uh, it was basically for the fact of um, helping people to understand themselves better and to grow and to help relationship team building. And as you can see from the diagram here, there, it's, a, it's an aspect of ourself, what I know about me um, and, and what I don't know about me across the top. And then down the side, it's what others know about me and what others, um, what I don't know about me. They'll, sorry, they don't know about me and I'll tell them. So in these four areas, the common area, and secondly, then in the, the blind spots, we want to talk about them today because we, uh, blind spots are something that we often struggle with in big, big time. And thirdly, in the hidden areas, those areas that are more private or secretive because of fear of rejection or because we want to be humble or whatever reason, it's non-disclosed. And then that fourth area, the unknown. I want you to uh, just consider for a moment um, your partner or your best friend. I don't mind who is in your mind. I'll let you mind wander here for a minute, but try to stay with my prompting of thinking. So in regards, say, to your best friend or your partner. So 45 years ago, I hadn't met Jenny, my wife. I didn't know her. So in the context of the Joe Harry window, that common information was zero. I didn't even know she existed. She didn't know I existed. But the fact is, then, we met uh, through the church that I was um, a student minister in, and uh, we, we had conversations. And over a period of time, there was common ground. There was common information. She got to know my name. I knew her name. That was an exciting place to start, wasn't it? Um, she knew where I lived, which was at the college, and I knew where she lived. Uh, there were things about her family, things about my family, just general information that, from both perspectives, that um, open, common area grew. You with me with your partner or your close friends? Okay. And as uh, the relationship built, without going into the detail there, but over time, in the process of our common areas growing, from conversations and dating and things like that, then um, I opened up more of myself towards her. You'd open up more towards the, that person you're thinking about as well. And then because over time you're disclosing information and they're getting close to you, you're getting close to them, they're sharing to you some of your blind spots. Isn't, wasn't that exciting? Really was. I don't think so. I still have blind spots shown to me and it goes even beyond my wife, it's my daughter, my son. I think even to some degree my son-in-law, my daughter-in-law, even my grandkids, even you, many of you. And I, I think I'm reasonably normal, I think. But even now at my age and in these relationships, sometimes with those blind spots you go, oh, I, I put a good facade up so it doesn't show too much necessarily, but Jenny can usually pick it. 
But, you know, it, it's painful. It's hard. But one thing I know in my head is that in the, the process of um, having things that are fed back to me, shared about my life, about my blind spots, I know in most cases the ones who share that feedback with me are people who are credible in my life. They are people who, who know me well and love me and only want the best for me. They've got no hidden agenda. And in the process then of my life with these significant people, these credible people, with people who I know generally, people I might even meet, only meet for the first time, and that happens in my office from time to time, regularly actually, um, and, and that development of myself or development of you comes because we are on a journey to go from the known through disclosure of my hidden and private areas to my, the feedback from my blind spots, which then allows my unknown, my potential, to be seen and experienced. So what I'm trying to say to you is that as painful as blind spots can be, they're important for us. Community is important for us. Community was important for the Israelite people. And they were blind to so many things in their life about the way they lived and the way they carried on that Amos was called to expose them to their blind spots. And what did they do? Told them to go home. They didn't handle it very well at all, like probably we do sometimes too. We don't handle it very well. But I, I think what's so important about this diagram too that I want to just uh, make a comment on, because it is a... You know, psychological principle. What I find so significant is that God knows me completely. Before I was born, God knew my known. God knew my hidden. God knew my blind spots. And God knew my unknown. I... Uh, I guess I've been refreshed again, even thinking these last couple of weeks, going through this little diagrammatic presentation of how much God knows me, knows all my strengths and my weaknesses. He knows the things that I battle with and struggle with. He knows the things that I am excited about, the things that really are significant in my life. He knows everything about me and you. And he loves us unconditionally. He loved his people, Israel, unconditionally. And yet it broke his heart the way they lived. We break God's heart sometimes the way we live. God just doesn't know everything. Sorry, God, not just that he knows everything, he knows me, he knows you. It's not just that God is everywhere. He is everywhere with me and with you. And as we've been going through the last four weeks on the mine, he's with us in our front line. It's not just that God created everything. He created you and me.
In the book of Genesis, it talks about when God created each day, it was good. But when he created mankind, when he created us, it was very good. And we live in a world now, my recent looking up the Dr. Google, Mr. Google, was that there's just sort of 8 million people on the face of the earth at the moment. Sorry, 8 billion people, 7.9 something or other. And every one of those people matter to God. The nation of Israel was in great need of getting feedback from how they were living. They had lost their way and God called Amos to reveal what they had become blind to. They truly struggled with idolatry, with things they, placed in, they put in place of God. And if it is that we are not open to the things that others can feed back to us, especially God, about the things we're blind to, then we won't grow to reach the potential that God created us to experience. In, um, in Matthew 6, that great section of Scripture, um, 5, 6 and 7, the Sermon of the Mount, we read, Don't hoard treasure down here where it gets eaten by moths and corroded by rust or worse, stolen by burglars. Stockpile treasure in heaven where it's safe from moth and rust and burglars. It's obvious, isn't it? The place where your treasure is, is the place where you want to be and end up being. God hasn't changed from the time of Amos, 750 BC approximately. So over two, two and a half thousand years later, God is still the same today in 2022. We have been blessed as the people of Israel were blessed to be a blessing to others. And I guess what excites me about the body here, and we are sinners, we fall short of God's standard, but there's such a desire to share the blessings that God has blessed us with. And uh, I think that's something that puts a smile on God's face. Psalm 139. We're getting near the end, so hang in there with me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. What David wrote here to me was powerfully and personally vulnerable for his life. King David came to the God of perfect knowledge and constant presence, knowing that he was also a God of love and could be trusted to search him and know him at the deepest levels. This was an admission to God uh, that God knew David better than he knew himself. In our personal discovery of our lives, firstly, we need God to search us and to know us. And then try me and know my anxieties. David wanted God to examine him and to look for the things that caused him worry and, and, and overwhelmed him and caused him to be anxious. These are the things of the heart, the things that can emotionally overwhelm us. God wants us to hand them over to him because such anxieties 
can undermine our faith and reduce our effectiveness in serving him. And those words in 1 Peter, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. We can read scripture, we can roll off our tongue, can't it? But as we take on these words, these, these, this awareness of God's presence and God's power and God's desire to bless, we can let go of things. And then in, back in Psalm 139, see if there is any wicked way in me. David opened his soul bare before God, asking if there is any unknown or unperceived sin, then show it to him. Show it to me. I believe one of God's plans for the purpose of the church, the community of believers, is to create safe relationships for us to connect in such a way that we can receive honest, loving feedback and also be willing to disclose the joys and sorrows of our private areas of life so that we might become more accountable, more healthy and more spiritually secure. And Paul in Ephesians 4, by speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him who was the head, even Christ. And I guess I understand that verse that Paul expressed there is for both our disclosure and for opportunities of feedback that we would be speaking the truth in love to build up in Christ. Amos 5 This is God's words again. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. And then in Amos 5, earlier verses, it says... Seek me and live. Seek the Lord and live. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Hate evil, do good. This is what God wanted and expected from Israel and Judah. This is what God wants and expects from us today. Amos was a courageous man with a contagious faith who embarked on an outrageous mission.